The content presented in this podcast is solely for educational purposes and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose, manage, or treat any health conditions. If you or someone you know has a condition or disease discussed in this podcast, we would encourage you to create and implement a care plan specific to your needs under the supervision of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in the field of fetal medicine and should not be interpreted as the standard of care. Hey, womb mates. Welcome back to the News Womb. This is Aaron Moise. And this is Ken Moise. And we're picking up with our second part on our special guest podcast, talking about selective reduction with Dr. Saul Snow Eyes. And like we mentioned at the end of last episode, we have some more good stuff coming to you, Dr. Moise. What are we talking about this week? In the previous podcast, Dr. Snow Eyes shared with us that his preferred technique for selective reduction is microwave. But we're going to move on and talk a little bit about RFA, radiofrequency ablation, and bipolar cautery and how those techniques differ and also how they might be applied to different clinical situations. So we're going to walk into the clinical arena and see how we do. Let's get into it. Sounds good. So switch gears for a second. Sounds like microwave is your tool and you like it a lot. But let's, if you have monoamniotic twins, you mentioned this earlier. So you have monoamniotic twins. One has an anomaly. They're in the same sac. Obviously the cords usually are tangled. Tell us how you address that and you want to do a selective reduction in the, let's say one is in encephaly. Yeah. And actually we had a case like this about two and a half years ago, exact same scenario. So as I said before, it's, we'll use a combination of the bipolar cautery, which we have. And it's a three millimeter bipolar, which fits nicely down the 12 French or four millimeter Cook catheter, which is our regular catheter that we use for lasers. And then we go in with that and a, we have a small 1.2 millimeter, I think it's 1.2, 1.3. Anyway, it's small enough. It's a one point something millimeter scope that we don't put in a sheath and we just put it down with the bipolar. And it's a little finicky, but it gives you exact visualization of where you're going. We find the umbilical cord insertion into the abdomen on the abnormal fetus. We follow the abnormality from the, uh, in this case, rosé crania down from the head straight down to the umbilical cord because it, it was in this case actually really tightly wound. We then grab the cord, make sure that we've got the right cord. Even then, you know, we have multiple layers of checks. So look at the heart rate on the non-affected entrant as we clamp because you should have a bradycardia pretty straight away. And then we do uh, a two or three burns until we feel it's adequate that we've closed off the cord. We'll then take that out and then put our, like I said, our uh, 2.3 millimeter Stortz fetoscope in with a laser fiber and use the laser fiber to uh, transect the cord. And again, being careful to make sure that we fire that laser when it's going at the reduced fetus, not at uterine wall or placenta. <laughs> Either way you say that, but we'll go into that. So we really don't cut it, right? You kind of whittle at it. It's really, this is a coagulation laser. People have to understand this and it's kind of frustrating. What wattage do you use to whittle at the core? I'm just curious. Yeah. So 40, 40 to 45 is what we use in that range. Just again, we don't want to have strong power shooting around in the cavity with what we're doing. You know, we tried micro scissors and we've tried all these different instruments and they just don't work well. We've just ran the lasers and using the heat in the laser, if you get in the right plane. It works well. And again, it's usually a two-person job with the camera and the bipolar. It, it does take two people's hands to kind of work both. But for the laser part, it's, it's just typical laser. And I find that if you keep tension on the cord, it works better. So trying to keep it pressed down. So I think the Everett, we used to use this Everett disposable horseshoe syrup and take it off the market. This is a Stortz instrument. 
you're yeah. talking about with the 1.3 scope through it. Yeah. I like that point you made about grabbing the cord, thinking, okay, I got the right one and just hanging on to it for a minute and making sure that there's no bradycardia in the other baby. Then you can go ahead and start coagulating. And how many times do you coagulate before you say, okay, I got this. Now I know where I'm going to go back in and cut. Yeah. Cause this kind of sounds like cutting down a tree with a kitchen knife. Yeah, it, it it actually works relatively well, and you can check with the color flow, but we do a minimum of two, probably three. We tend to overdo it a little bit. When I say two, we we'll make ourselves sound a little more braver than we are, but probably you do about at least three, if not more, burns until we have a good section. We can see no flow and color Doppler coming through, and you can look at the core, too. When you're looking at it visually, you can see that it's totally climbed out and nothing's gone on. And I find it always interesting when you start firing that laser, you see a little blood come out of there, and you go, oh my goodness, did I really coagulate it, but it's just the blood in that. Or too you. close to the abdomen and go past your, yeah, and yeah, yeah. leads from the reduced fetus, yeah. For sure. So RFA, let's see, was first probably, or no, our bipolar was first, and then RFA, and then now microwave, as you point out. But when you compare the problem rates for RFA and bipolar, why, why is there a difference, do you think? I think it's diameter. We know that, right? When they were doing uh, the original studies and they're doing bipolar, they're using five millimeters. That's our standard, you know, laparoscopic instrument, right? So it's widely available. hundred percent of those patients p pronged when they went down to the smaller bipolar using the three millimeter, that rate almost halved. So, you know, we've seen that with our scopes and twin to twin that the Europeans using, you know, eight, nine millimeter scopes have lower p prong rates. But for us, in my opinion, I think it's just purely uh, the size. The bigger the instrument you put to the membranes, the more likely you are to disrupt the membranes and lead to ruptured membranes. And so your microwave, you said, was 17-gauge needle, is that right? 17-gauge needle, exactly the same as the RFA, yeah. And we have a 15-gauge, like I said, which we've used once. But actually, when you look back at the data, can you know, because the whole bunch of the, the old RFA machine used to be like a 14-gauge, wasn't it? Right. Well, there is still 14 gauge. gauge. Yeah. Yeah. But it has, it has five prongs that come out of it. So it was for bigger tumors. You know, the, the NAFNET study on that didn't show a difference actually in P prong rates. Which right. is- yeah. It's interesting. So, but the microwave, so it's an actual needle though. I've never seen it. It's an actual needle point. I mean, it's got yeah. a, a sharp point. Yeah. It's not, and again, it takes a little bit of nuance to it. It's not as stiff as the RFA. It bends easily. You need to be pretty close to perpendicular to the fascia to get through. And you've just got to be straight on to your target, you know, perpendicular to your target. You can't be tangential. So it takes a bit of getting used to. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's move on to some other indications for selective reduction. We have a soapbox here at the news womb that we jumped onto probably in our second episode of identical twins. And shouldn't they be identical? Why do they have discordant anomalies? Yeah, And this has come up several times. So how do you explain this to patients? Well, just simply that structural anomalies don't always have a genetic cause, right? We know that a majority of the anomalies we see are not based in a genetic malformation, at least not that we know about. And as we go back to what we talked about earlier, when that egg splits, it just increases the risk of there being a structural anomaly in these kids that is unrelated to the genetics. We see it often, discordant anomalies in these monochorionic twins, and they have a much higher rate of anomalies. One out of three twins will have either growth restriction, a major structural anomaly, or sharing abnormality. So they are high risk. We know that. That's why we follow them closer. And you've pretty much seen the full gamut. You mentioned oh. hypoplastic heart and, mm-hmm. and encephaly and crania. Yep. Can you think of some weird ones that you've seen in the monochorionic twins? So... Um, the first, you know, we have a very good relationship with the University of Minnesota, and they, the first question they sent to us was a suspected TTTS, and it was a lumbody wall um, oh, wow. with, it, with a monochorionic twin as well. So we've had some, that was probably the weirdest one. 
you know, I certainly understand how they thought that it was a twin to twin. That's amazing. So trap, let's move on to trap for a second. And you had talked about a trap you had watched earlier. Tell us a little bit about how you explain trap to patients and tell us a little bit of how often it occurs. So kind of what's your counseling about trap? What do you do with that? How do you talk about that? Well, it's rare. I mean, if we look at that, only 25% of twins are monochorionic and only 1% of monochorionic twins are trap. It's rare. It's occurrence, but we still get runs. The way I explain it to patients is uh, we don't know the exact mechanism. We don't know whether it's abnormal cardiac structure or function early on in the one twin and that the pump twin, quote unquote, keeps it alive or whether it's because of those connections in the monochorionic placenta that there's a volume overload um, going one way that actually damages the heart. But either way, you have basically normally a, a cardiac mass, which has by definition no heart, although we've had patients present with the a cardiac mass having a heart varying degrees of, you know, missing head, missing upper torso, upper limbs, I should say, sorry. And the way that mass is kept growing is that there's a usually single artery, there can be two, but a single artery coming back from the placenta, which is reversed. It's coming from the pump twin back to the acardiac twin, and that is uh, supplying blood to the acardiac mass. So yeah, that's the, the basic explanation. It's better when I do my really average pictures with the patients than uh, trying to do it by talking on the, in the podcast. It's kind of hard to, for them to envision that, right? Because everything yeah. is reversed. And what I find so weird about it when you look at a more ultrasound is you're right. It's typically upper extremities are missing or rudimentary heads missing. Sometimes you have a heart, but it's a rudimentary heart. Mm-hmm. But there's always these little legs kicking around. It's the most bizarre yeah. thing. As you know, sometimes you have fluid. And so they're making urine and then they have legs kicking around and you're like, there must be some, you know, reflex arc or something going on there because it just doesn't make sense. There's no head, right? Yeah. It's very very bizarre, very bizarre. So let's say you had diagnosed trap at early, let's say 14, 15 weeks. How do you decide when to jump in? You talked about your patient that waited and waited and waited, but in an optimal situation, do you use something to decide, okay, I got to go now. This is not looking good. Yeah. It's time. I think the one thing that makes us go now, if we looked at the pump twin and saw cardiac dysfunction and evidence of high output failure, high drops, you know, it's clear that you have to do something, right? And again, that's why the, the TRAPPIST trial, which is basically looking at early intervention versus waiting until 18 weeks is, I think it's still going, right? I mean, I don't think they've closed it yet. There are a number of centers, but I think it's still ongoing. But that's a clear sign, right? If there's a clear high output state, the, the pump twin is not doing well. That's a clear sign that we have to do something. And we've only had one case that was early on, which is around 15 to 16 weeks where that showed up like that, where we had the pump twin just really in distress and we, we couldn't wait till what we talked about, which is 18 weeks. But otherwise, after that, I think people use a, a bunch of things and we use, again, not just one variable, but we use the a cardiac to pump twin ratio. So I think the literature says that there's a high risk of high drops developing in the pump twin if the ratio is greater than 0.7 or if the, basically the acardiac mass is about 70% of the mass of the pump twin. But I think that's really waiting too long. I think we see greater than 50%. I think we're really concerned, especially if it's still growing. I think we also look very much at the single umbilical artery coming into the acardiac mass. If there's really good diastolic flow, it's not going away. You know, we definitely have seen ones where there's absent flow in that in between and diastole. And those are the ones that spontaneously resolve. We have a higher chance of spontaneously resolving. But if there's really good diastolic flow, I mean, that's a low resistance area. And that's just going to keep sucking up blood from the pump twin. And then uh, polyhydramnios. Once they develop poly, 
increased cardiac output and obviously cardiac dysfunction. I mean, it's go time. I think this, this is a great point. I like the idea about the diastolic flow, just to kind of reiterate that. So if you have a normal umbilical artery flow towards the cardiac, that's not good, right? Cause that means you have a low resistance circuit exactly. and you would, you're going to keep perfusing it. It's going to get bigger. Yep. If you have like absent in diastolic flow, it's a high resistance circuit kind of like what we see in placental IUGR situations. And that's probably going to fix itself. We've seen that too, where you just come back the week later and there's no flow anymore. It took yep. care of itself. Exactly. Know? Exactly. I love to call these the Lazarus twins. As you know, what happens is they have a sort of a vanishing twin in the OB's office at eight or 10 weeks. Oh yeah. And then at the 20 week anatomy, they go, what is this blob here that's yeah. floating around here? And you go, it's a trap. That was our last trap. I yeah, think. Was it? Yeah. Classic story, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Yeah. So I think, and by the way, so we've also looked at using the MCA Doppler as a measure of cardiac output. As you know, normally, at least in anemic cases, we believe part of the reason you get a high systolic flow in the MCA, peak systolic velocity, is because there is a high cardiac output state. So we've looked at that, and that's another measure we use looking at that MCA and compared it on the anemic charts to say, because I think. Doing a cardiac output like some people try to do in a fetus is fraught with error because of the dimensions you're talking about. But looking at the MCA can be a good marker because a high MCA can be a good marker for high cardiac output state. Agreed. And we definitely use that as an ancillary measurement as well, for sure. All right. We're going to finish up, I think, almost finish up here with selective reduction for IUGR. You know, you have a patient that comes in with monochorionic twins, not TTS, normal fluid in one sac. Absent or really minimal fluid in the other. So it's one of the Gratakos IUGRs, probably a type two, right? Which is a really bad umbilical flow. How do you counsel those patients as to when to intervene? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think, and I will say that I've probably become more conservative in intervention just based on experience in the literature. So as we know, a type one Gratakos, which is normal Doppler. So not quite the scenario you had, you know, this very low chance of progression, you know, five, 10% maybe, and it usually takes place over months. The type twos, I think there's a very widespread of what happens. And we, we've seen it, I know you've seen it tons as well. Well, those patients come in at 16, 17 weeks and uh, their first HDS check, they have absent end diastolic flow. There's a 20% discordance between the kids, but otherwise everything is normal, normal, you know, ductus venosus, normal fluid, everything else. We certainly talk to all these patients about all their options at that point. And I don't think we have to wait for a baby to be in severe distress before we intervene. And for me, severe distress would be reverse end diastolic flow in the umbilical artery, as you said, anhydramnios or oligohydramnios, really bad sign. You're not perfusing the kidneys. There's not enough output. And then looking at the ductus venosus as well. If you believe Bashat's process of increased placental resistance, then a cardiac dysfunction from pushing against that resistance, which makes perfect physiologic sense. Once the DV goes bad, it's a big issue. Yeah. Let's say you had a patient at 19 weeks yeah. and the discrepancy was 50%. Yeah. It's a, a type two retaco, so there's absent flow, maybe not reverse, but absent flow of the cord. And there's a 50% discordance at 19 weeks. Dr. Bach and I had this exact discussion today. We're talking about this, you know, fetal growth restriction is not fetal growth restriction, you know, and we can't use one standard protocol to treat them all. I think a 50% growth restriction, absent end diastolic flow, we certainly would offer, we do to all our patients, but certainly would offer a reduction. And we're talking yep. about low likelihood of this progressing to a viable pregnancy and just obviously the risk to the other baby, you know, with the losses we talked about, the 15 to 20% risk of co twin loss, the 15 to 20% additional risk of neurologic injury if it survives. So, you know, I certainly think that would be a very different scenario than a 20% to 25% discordance. 
So a patient says, I can't bring myself to do a selective reduction. Can you do a laser for me? Do you ever do a laser, even though it's really not twin twin in that case? Yeah. I mean, you know, we try and put it this way. We have done maybe four or five lasers for pure selective fetal growth restriction in our time here. Keep in mind, we're on the Midwest and people don't go for selective reduction quite a bit. So we actually have had some opportunity in cases like this to do laser. As a physician, you want to give the patient all the information they can to make the best informed decision. And for us, our goal and the patient's goal is to have in this situation, at least one healthy baby. And even though they know that we may be doing a selective reduction by laser, they've opted for that. And we've just said though, that the only thing is the difference in PPROM rates. We go from a 10 to 15 or maybe 20% PPROM rate to over 30 to 35% PPROM rate without 12 French introducer for laser. Not to mention the risk of septostomy, though it's not the cord entanglement, so it's such a big deal or, or pseudoamniotic band syndrome. So I think for protecting the other twin, I think a selective reduction is best, but again, it's informed consent and we certainly respect people's decisions and understand their desires not to do a selective reduction. I think that makes a lot of sense. You go into it saying, look, we're pretty sure this little baby's not going to be with us tomorrow. Yeah. Given, you know, from all the data, you've published a paper on this yourself from our data in Houston, yeah. you know, if you've got an absent or reverse endostatic flow and I think it was what, 30% difference in size? Yeah, greater than 30% difference, reverse endostatic flow, velamentous marginal cord insertion in our series, a hundred percent of those donors demise. It's not quite the same, but it's still, you can say 80 to 90%, which is probably the reality there, you know? And just for our listeners, the reason we think that's true is because you take out those shared cotyledons that probably were keeping that baby alive. Yeah. Where the bigger twin was maybe even given some oxygen to its co-sib. Exactly. And once you remove that, then it's on its own because it's got 10% of the placenta or something and yeah. you're destined to fail. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, even though the donor is giving away blood to its sibling, it's relying on some nutrients coming back and uh, yep. explain to the patients, we can, we can fix the anastomosis. We can't create placenta and there's just not a way to keep that baby alive. Have you ever done lasers, well, done RFAs or in your case, microwaves for failed lasers? I mean, is there, what do you think's the place for it? Yeah, I I think, well, failed lasers are rare, but we have done one and it was for a triplet pregnancy with complications and bleeding and membrane separation. And just, you can't do a laser after that. A, visualization is going to be terrible and B, with separated membranes, trying to put a, a scope through that, you'll just immediately rupture. So we have done one for that. In fellowship, we did one or two, I think as well for, again, you know, failed lasers where the patients opted to do that as opposed to try a repeat laser. So I think there is a role for it. And again, we, when we sit down with any twin to twin patient, we talk about all the options and the two main intervention options are laser or selective reduction. And that's given us an option in, in every case. Again, most people, especially about the time they made it to our center, there are four intervention trying to save both babies. But like I said, we had the one hyperplastic heart I talked about was actually a stage three twin to twin. And they opted for selective reduction as opposed to laser. You know, that's what their option because the baby was so severely affected. And I remember when we were starting, this is way back when, before I even met you in New Zealand, we all were concerned that these hydropic stage fours shouldn't be done with laser and that selective reduction was treatment of choice. And I remember Quintero telling us, because he was ahead of us doing lasers in the States at least, saying, no, no, it'll reverse. These kids will turn around. And I think fewer and fewer people talk about selective reduction with stage four. We can get survivors, not as high a survival rate in those recipients, but clearly survivors with resolution of high drops. So few selective reductions, even with stage four now. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Our numbers for stage four are almost the survivors, almost as good as stage two, but definitely better than stage three. Because again, as long as the recipient's heart can tolerate the surgery, they do tend to recover. So, right. yeah, so sure. And you mentioned, you know, that your state laws are not necessarily a particular gestational age, but just viability. And, you know, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade and we have you know, the heartbeat law in Texas, but have you seen an increase of referrals to your center after the t- Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade? Yeah. And it's not just for selective reduction. I think we're getting a little bit of medical tourism. So we have patients who have MMCs that probably know that they may not want to continue. But so they come to see us knowing that they can go on and complete care that they want afterwards. Our average uptake on MMC repair is somewhere between 70 and 80%. That's on average. Last year, we had almost a 50% non-continuation rate with pregnancies, which is very unusual for our patient population. And I think a lot of it was patients coming from out of state. So I think the current legal and political atmosphere is pushing patients who have the resources to go elsewhere. Right. I just saw some statistics. We had 10,000 more babies born in Texas last year after our initial SB8 rule. And then I saw just today where our infant mortality has gone up. Yeah. Probably as a result of some of these anomalies that can't get out of state Mm -hmm. and end up delivering and dying soon after birth because of bad chromosomal problems or heart problems or whatever. So it's changed the whole landscape of how we deal with this. And it's interesting. These lawmakers who come up with these crazy rules do not understand what you and I do every day, which is dealing with twins where one twin's putting a second normal twin at risk exactly. and our hands are tied. And it just really pushes the envelope for me to say, what do we do in these cases? I agree. And I think it's ridiculous. I should say ridiculous. It's, uh, it is ridiculous. Actually, I'll go back to that word that, you know, for us, we call it ablation of blood supply to an eight cardiac mass as opposed to a selective termination of a trap, right? That we live in a climate where we have to say that we're, we're well, and Karen taught us for Medicaid because Medicaid in Texas wouldn't allow us to do RFAs on even a cardiacs to your point, And we started calling it tumor reduction. Yeah. So we started out as a tumor reduction because yeah. it really isn't a fetus, right? I mean, it doesn't have a head. It may or may not have a small. It's viable. I mean, it's a yeah, yeah, exactly. tissue. Well, Dr. Snowice, do you have anything else that you want to add or any questions for us? No, I just honored to be included in the podcast and it's been uh, great talking with you guys. And yeah, I can't say I miss the heat of Texas, but I, I definitely miss working with you guys. Well, we miss having you here too. You're always fun to be with. And I'll think about you when it's 30 below, but you can think about us when it's 104 down here. So exactly. we really want to, I know you're a busy man and we appreciate your taking the time to do this and helping our listeners understand what the whole issue of selective reduction is, how you do it, when you do it. So I think we're going to sign off. And again, thanks, thanks all for all the things you've helped us do. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ken. Well, roommates, that wraps us up. So thank you so much for tuning in tonight. This is Aaron Moise signing off. And this is Ken Moise. More to follow. See ya. Thanks, all. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. You too.